when someone comes along and disputes, disrupts the status quo, how will people respond? We've gotten some answer to that in this nation in the last four or five years. If the reason why he is disrupting the status quo is legitimate, then there's a good chance that many people will try to stop him or shut him up. When you think about it, there's a reason why the status quo is the status quo. People accept it. It works for them. They get used to the idea, to the reality of it. Perhaps they are particularly benefited in some way. There may be some advantage to the situation. For some, maybe they see things as being peaceful because their own life isn't bothered. They know that their life is comfortable. And their contentedness blinds them to their callousness. Tomorrow, here in our nation, in America, though considerably less so in Southwest Virginia for some sad reason, we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We remember him as the face of the civil rights movement in the 60s. We remember the dreams that he had, the speeches that he gave, the letters that he wrote. When Martin Luther King Jr. bucked against the establishment, even in non-physical, non-violent ways, the establishment pushed back. I'm no civil rights buff, but what I do know is that when you rub enough people the wrong way, because their ways are ineffective or immoral or self-exalting, and you have the audacity to call them out on it, you run the risk of immediate and severe consequences. Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered. He was assassinated because he called out the prevalent racism in America and rightfully demanded equality. A life cut short because of an uncomfortable truth exposed. Have you heard the story of the death of Jesus of Nazareth? You see, unlike MLK Jr., Jesus wasn't assassinated by a single man. Jesus upset the religious establishment of his time so much so that all of them did everything in their collective power to silence him indefinitely. A life cut short because of an uncomfortable truth exposed. This afternoon, today, together, Let's take a look at the murder of Jesus from Luke chapter 23. We'll actually be starting in Luke chapter 22, if you haven't already turned there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in chapter 22, verse 66. And we're actually going to go ahead and read as we begin all the way through chapter 23, verse 51. So bear with me as we read this chunk of text together. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. 
And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with the soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, look, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they cried, but they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. If Jesus was innocent, then who was guilty? As we look at the trials of Jesus here in our text, especially in chapter 23, we see three things. The innocence of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, and the enmity toward Jesus. The innocence of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, and the enmity toward Jesus. First, the innocence of Jesus. Luke goes to great lengths to record Jesus' innocence. Why? Why does Luke go to such great lengths to record for us Jesus' innocence? It was because he is writing this letter, he's written it to Theophilus, so that Theophilus would have certainty of the things that he has been taught, so he would know why. Why did Jesus die in this particular way, and why is it okay for us to believe that? Why is it okay for Jesus have, to have been killed to have been handed over the way that he was, to have been treated the way that he was? Is he still worth following, knowing all of these facts? Is there anything that takes away from his sovereignty? Is there anything that takes away from his perfection? Is there anything that takes away from his ability to withstand and to help me through my trials because of the way in which he suffered and died? They want, Luke wants us to know as his readers that Jesus was in fact innocent. There was no true and lasting reason why, given by all these trials that Jesus went through, why Jesus had to die. And that the Savior was no ordinary man. The innocence of Jesus at his trials and crucifixion are a window displaying his sinlessness. Jesus' innocence displays his sinlessness. So let's take a look at all the people who show us Jesus' innocence. First, the council, there back in chapter 22, where we started. And really, you could even maybe look in comparison with their conclusion in chapter 22, and then the beginning of chapter 23 with their accusation. So the council, 
the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, as it says there in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And so the council says, if you are the Christ, there in verse 67, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. So I'm not, I'm not going to respond to this ridiculousness. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to fall into this trap. Because even if I were to ask you, you wouldn't tell the truth. What do they actually say? But from now on, this is what Jesus says in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said, they surmised from this, verse 70, Are you then the Son of God? Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. You're, uh, that's what you said. I mean, that, that's the conclusion that you've come to. And so they said from that, verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So they're saying Jesus is blaspheming because Jesus is declaring himself to be the Son of God, even though they're actually the ones who said it. But what's the charge then that they bring to Pilate? What does the council say to Pilate? Do they say, oh, the problem is that Jesus has blasphemed? Do they say that Jesus has claimed to be someone that he is not? No, not really. Their actual argument is there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, I mean, if you go back just a few chapters in Luke, you can see clearly that Jesus did the exact opposite. He said, give to Caesar what's due to Caesar, and give to God what's due to God. So, on the record, at least as far as Luke has given it to us, Jesus explicitly said, look, be a lawful, lawfully abiding citizen. Do what you're supposed to do according to the rulers that are over you. As long as it's not offensive to God, not against his law, and giving back to Caesar is not against God's law because Jesus told us that we should be able and willing and ready to do it. But their accusation is, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And then they tag along and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so what they're trying to do is say he is a threat to Caesar. If Caesar is the only true king, then they're saying Jesus is setting himself up as a king who is equal to or even greater than Caesar. And this, was not, this would not be good news to Caesar. Caesar would not like this. Those under Caesar's charge, like Pilate, would not like to have been brought this... They would not like this information to have been brought to them because they would have to do something about it. That's what they're thinking. That's what the council is thinking. These chief priests, these scribes, saying Pilate's going to have to do something about this. And so do you see how what they do in their council, there at the end of chapter 22, is not even the same thing that they end up saying to Pilate, according to Luke. And then notice at the end of the text that we read, 
in chapter 23, verses 50 and 51, not even all of them agreed with one another. This is why we, part of why we read all of this. Verse 50 of chapter 23. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. So amongst themselves, they didn't even really all truly agree Obviously, the majority won over, or at least the loudest won over, but it wasn't unanimous what they had decided to do. So clearly, they did not have all of these charges as legitimate charges. And then notice how Pilate responds. Pilate, he begins to respond in verse 3, and Pilate asked him, so then he starts to question Jesus himself, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, you've said so. This is what you've heard. You've heard it appropriately. You're the one who said it. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So the initial observation from Pilate is that the things that you're doing here are illegitimate. The charges that you've brought don't hold up. I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. He stirs up the people to what? Well, again, this is the council's, the leader's way of trying to get Pilate to really pay attention and to really you know, look at it from a different angle and say, Well, he's trying to raise up people to overthrow Rome. He's trying to lead people astray. He's trying to lead people away from being under your jurisdiction. So the first time in verse 3 and 4, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Verses 13 through 16, after Jesus has gone over to Herod and is sent back to Pilate, verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him, which is like a legal technical term, after doing what I'm supposed to do as a man in charge, as the judge here in this case, look, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, verse 15, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. It's clear the second time, even another leader in the area, a ruler, has seen that Jesus is innocent. Verse 22, a third time, Pilate tells them. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. The council did not agree amongst themselves. Pilate, three times, said this guy is innocent. Another ruler, Herod, agreed with Pilate. What's an, another way that we see in our text that Jesus is innocent? A criminal, one of the people who is hanging on a cross beside Jesus, tells us that Jesus himself is innocent. Verse 39 of chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? 
Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Look, look, man, we deserve to be here. We both screwed up major. And we deserve this death. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man's done nothing wrong. So the council, the Jewish leaders, have no basis. They have no proof. Their witnesses, as you can look at in the other Gospels, are conflicting. They are trying to bring false witnesses, but even their own witnesses are going against each other. Pilate, three times, says he's innocent. He does not deserve death. He's done nothing wrong. A criminal, one who is hanging on a cross next to Jesus, says he's done nothing wrong. Then you have the centurion, a Roman soldier, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. So then after Jesus dies, this man sees the way in which Jesus dies and says, This was wrong. This guy did not deserve it. The innocence of Jesus gives us a clear picture into the true identity of Jesus. Whereas the titles given to Jesus in our passage are meant as mockery and ridicule, oftentimes, usually, except maybe for that what I just read from verse 43, or 47, excuse me, I think Luke uses the titles of Jesus to clue us into the truth behind the treachery. The irony in all of these trials is that Jesus does not declare any of these titles for himself, but he is nevertheless correctly identified. The identity of Jesus is on display even while he refuses to defend himself. And the council, going back to where we started, I mentioned it already, but... In verse 70 of chapter 22, So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? Jesus is seen to be the Son of God. The King of the Jews, the inscription that is written. Pilate asked him, verse 3 of 23, Are you the King of the Jews? He answered him, You have said so. And so what did they do? Verse 38 says what they did about that title. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. I mean, they mocked him in the earlier verse, in verse 37, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But still the title was put over him. Then we have the Christ of God and the chosen one, which is just a few verses earlier in verse 35. And the people stood by watching, But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, and the criminal that was not on the right side um, of the situation, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? People recognize Jesus for who he truly is. And we began looking at our text 
by asking the question, if Jesus was innocent, and if people really actually saw who he truly was, then who really is guilty here? And since we've clearly seen from several different people, several different groups, that Jesus was innocent, and we've witnessed the confessions, albeit tongue-in-cheek or straight up, we've witnessed the confessions of his identity by those who even punished him. We're now left to assess the guilt And that's where we come into the enmity of humanity. It's on full display for us. Jesus was innocent, and we can see who Jesus was, even just in this chapter. Much less the earlier 22 chapters that Luke has already written for us. But where exactly do we find, do we see such hatred and animosity? Where does it come from? What is it? Why is it? Well, we saw it a couple weeks ago and even last week explicitly when Jesus was handed over to the mob because Judas betrayed him. Judas is one of the first ones. Where, who, who's guilty here in all of this? Who's responsible for Jesus being put in this position? Well, Judas, I mean, would be the first place that I would go to. I mean, he's betrayed Jesus, Jesus' own disciple, who gets tired of the fact that Jesus hasn't given him what he's wanted, that Jesus has not put him in a position that he thought he deserved, that Jesus has not brought him the wealth that he thought he might come into by being a follower. The greed of Judas is one example of the enmity of humanity When it comes to what I expect God to give me, what I should receive, and then what it seems like God falls short. We expect certain things from God, and when he doesn't deliver, we take matters into our own hands. And one of those things is greed. We always are wanting more. We're wanting more than what we have. We're not satisfied, we're not content with what God has provided or what we think God will provide. Judas took it upon himself. The hatred that greed can bring. The Jewish leaders, other gospel writers, talk about their envy. They use the word envy. So we have Judas, then we have the Jewish leaders, the envy. They, we see all throughout the Gospels, but especially the last few chapters that we've gone through in Luke, how the leaders are constantly coming up to him and trying to trick him. And they're afraid of the people. And that's why they have to get Judas to betray him to them. And they have to do it at night. And why Jesus says, Have you come out of us against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. They were afraid of the people. The Jewish leaders envied Jesus' relationship to the people because it's the relationship that they thought they had previously, and it's the relationship that they wanted moving forward. 
they wanted to be seen as high and mighty. They wanted to be seen as the ones who were important. They are the ones who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They love to devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They like to put in a bunch of money in the offering plate, all the while still remaining rich and satisfied and content because they have all that they need in their bank account because of the way that they've used their position to gain themselves. But when Jesus comes along and he upsets the status quo and he says, look, these guys are robbing you blind. These guys are fake. They're false. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't talk about us like that. That's not, that's not cool. And so they use what little power they have. And as we've seen in how Jesus was clearly innocent, but it was simply the pressure that they put on the Pilate because of their envy, because of their jealousy. I had to teach a, a Bible class uh, last week, was subbing at school, and I had to teach Bible class, and we were going through the works of the flesh. And we were defining all the different works of the flesh. And envy and jealousy were in there. And so it was a group of um, seventh grade boys. And they're like, what's the difference between envy and jealousy? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) They're basically interchangeable. But if envy had to be described as something different than jealousy, I guess it would be hatred to to the extent that You take action. Like envy is not just a feeling, but it's a feeling that leads you to want to harm that other person. I mean, jealousy can just be a feeling of, man, I wish I had what they had. But envy can lead you to a point where you're willing to take an action to get what they have, to steal what they have, to coerce somebody, to trick them. That's what envy can lead you to. And that's what envy led the Jewish leaders to. To turn Jesus over on false charges that they couldn't substantiate. And then to simply use their influence, their voice, to get their way. Judas, the Jewish leaders, soldiers. We see the soldiers... In the few verses before what we read, in verse 63 of chapter 22, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. The soldiers with Herod. In chapter 23, verse 10, or verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. Verse 36 of chapter 23, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The soldiers, I mean, are the ones who literally are guilty of putting Jesus on the cross and causing him to physically die. 
They're the ones who demanded his blood, who struck him, who beat him, who put the crown of thorns on his head, who nailed him, his hands and his feet, to the cross so that he might suffocate and die. The soldiers, I mean, it was, they despised those who weren't Roman. They despised people who didn't have the power to defend themselves against them. They looked down upon anyone. They looked down upon the Jews. They looked down upon Jesus for having gotten to this point where his own people gave him up. Pilate. Pilate's responsible. I mean, how can you as a judge say this guy's innocent and yet still hand him over to the death penalty? I mean, that's... Some guilt lies on Judas for betraying him. Some guilt lies on the Jewish leaders for raising their voices to such an extent that Pilate felt like he had no other choice. The soldiers are guilty. They're the ones who actually did it. And they spit on Jesus. They mocked him. They beat him. They crucified him. Pilate is the one who oversaw all of this and did nothing when he was the one who had power to do something about it. But it wasn't just those people. It wasn't just Judas. It wasn't just the Jewish leaders. It wasn't just the soldiers. It wasn't just Pilate. And I'm stepping a touch outside of just the text that we're in today, but I think it's important for us to realize why Jesus was willing to go through with all of this. And the fact that Jesus laid down his life. His life was not taken from him, but it was given. He gave his life because he knew that's why he was there. That's why he came. This was the plan of God. Acts chapter 2, which Luke also wrote. And this is Peter, the day of Pentecost, giving this sermon Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it's not just Judas. It's not just the Jewish leaders. It's not just the soldiers. It's not just Pilate. It's Jesus himself giving his life, and it's God's plan that was running through in between the lines of all of this. God had planned this to happen in this way. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. Peter goes on in another instance to say, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So it wasn't just... Judas and the Jewish leaders and the soldiers and Pilate. It was God and Jesus himself. And it was the people. I mean, it's easy to miss the references where we were in Luke chapter 23, but the people are part of this also. And that's what Peter is trying to say to them in Acts chapter 2. You are responsible for this. You might have acted in ignorance at the time, 
you might not have known any better. And even the rulers might not have known any better. And Jesus, when he's going to the cross, he says in chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus knew that this was beyond them. But they were still responsible, even though they acted in ignorance, even though Jesus wanted them to be forgiven because they had no idea what they truly were doing. Even the people, the regular Joes, Jesus said, forgive them. And so it was all these people, and it was God, and it was us. I mean, we sing songs that have words like, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. We can plead all day long that we don't know how to appease God, that we don't know God's plan, that we don't know God's law, that this life is difficult, that God's expectations are too much for us to be able to handle. But even if, as Peter said, as Jesus prayed, even if we can plead ignorance, we are still responsible. We're still culpable. We are. It was our sin that held him there. Isaiah 53, we talked about it last week, and it's worth talking about any time you look at Scripture. What put Jesus on the cross? Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We cannot benefit from the effects of the cross until we accept and admit the hand that we each played in it. We can say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. I mean, that's a creed. It's built into the Christian faith, the infamy of this ruler in Jerusalem at that time. And we can say it's Pilate's fault. We can say it's Judas's fault for betraying him. We can say it's the soldier's fault for carrying out wicked orders. We can say it's God's fault. But if we never get to the point where we are able and willing and ready to say it was my sin that held him there, then we miss the opportunity that we have to recognize that God's plan and God's foreknowledge was meant to show us grace in the midst of all of this suffering that this innocent man has undergone. And so the question that we're left with that sort of corresponds to the question we began with when we 
begin looking at our text, is do you believe that you're guilty? If Jesus was innocent, if Jesus was correctly identified, who is guilty? And if we look at the facts of the matter as the Bible gives it to us, both here and in Luke, and then also in Luke's later writings like Acts, or in the rest of Scripture, Old Testament and New, that it was because of our sin that Jesus was put in this position. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your sin is the reason why Jesus bled and died on a cross? If you don't, your continued ignorance and arrogance will leave you damned for all eternity. If you do understand your guilt, then you know that you will find, as we look at this book, then you know that you will find, as Jesus, one of his final words, Father, forgive them. You'll find a God who is ready with open arms to accept you back, to forgive you. When you acknowledge your guilt before him, he's not standing there with a whip saying, all right, now comes the punishment once you finally confessed. No, he's waiting there with open arms saying, I'm so glad that you have not steeped yourself in the idea that you don't deserve punishment, that you don't that you haven't done anything wrong. I'm so glad that you have come to recognize and to admit. Not just that it was your sin, but that I am a God who is gracious and merciful, who abounds in steadfast love, who's slow to anger, who's quick to forgive. When we recognize God for who he truly is, when we see his innocence, when we recognize his identity, we can realize that it was our own enmity, it was our own hostility, our own anger, our own desire to live life our way and not God's way that put Jesus on the cross. But the power of the resurrection shows us that that's not the end of the story for us who admit our guilt that we too can be raised to new life. That if God had the power to physically raise Jesus from the dead, he has the power to spiritually give us new life. This is what we are called to believe. This is what we are given the opportunity to believe. You don't have to. But if you don't, you're missing out. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to look at it, to see the particular ways in which you have worked the plan that you had made for thousands of years. How it came to this point and how it came 
in such a way that we can see ourselves in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of these soldiers, in the midst of these characters in this story. But how you give us the hope of eternal life, how you give us the offer of peace, the offer of forgiveness. Help us to be individuals and a people who recognize not just our guilt and stay there, who don't just wallow in pity, but who recognize the God that we serve as being a God who is gracious and merciful. God, you are gracious and merciful. And so we are here to give you praise because we have understood it, we have seen it, we have heard it, we've read about it. And so help us continue to live in such a way that this is true for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.